ago after chapel, a visitor, uh, she was, had a student that was visiting, and I could tell she was upset, and she was coming at me and looked angry, so I tried to run away. Uh, but it's a small campus, and she eventually tracked me down uh, as I was hiding behind a bush. And I thought, uh, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And she said, uh, you know, I was in chapel today, and I really enjoyed hearing Pastor Althea Taylor, but some students were talking, and they were making so much noise, and I just felt so bad for Pastor Taylor and felt it was so disrespectful. And she yelled at me for the next hour or two. And uh, I, uh, I apologized and uh, said, you know, we meant no disrespect, and I'm sure the students didn't mean any disrespect. But uh, uh, I, I do want to share that with you, that as we have our guests and as we gather for corporate worship together, we'd be respectful not only of our speakers and of our guests, uh, but we're respectful of one another and, of course, respectful of our Lord who we gather together to worship. Uh, many of you remember Pastor Larry Kim last semester who came and spoke, and uh, I said, can you recommend a name? Who would you recommend? Who'd be at the top of your list? He says, uh, he says well, you've got to get Chaplain Mako Nagasawa, and uh, uh, Chaplain Mako Nagasawa. I had it wrong for weeks because it was always via email. Now he's told me I was pronouncing it wrong, and he's so gracious, so I, I think I have it right now. But he's currently the advisor to the Harvard Radcliffe Christian Fellowship and has been a staff member with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, Fellowship since 2001 serving at Boston College, Boston University, Harvard, MIT, and Tufts. He graduated from Stanford with a degree in industrial engineering and public policy and has spent the last 19 years in urban ministries, both in California and more recently in the city of Dorchester. He and his wife, Ming, have lived in Dorchester since 2000 and have two children, John, who is 12, and Zoe, who is 10. Will you please give a warm welcome to Chaplain Nagasawa? on and you can hear me okay okay well it's great to be here with you this is my first time at eastern nazarene and it's beautiful especially with the snow out and what i really liked about this morning so far is the look on your faces when Corey's talked about zumba we 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 do that at harvard and and boston college also where i i split some of my time and it's intimidating for some a 40 year old guy like me well, this morning, I wanted to share a little bit, to, to, just to whet your appetite for what I'm going to talk about. Uh, here are some things, here are some ways that you can take this talk. I'm going to explain why Democrats and Republicans can't talk to each other anymore. I'm going to explain how God is restoring us to a vision for a relationship and why that matters. If you're not a Christian, I'm going to explain why Jesus is so important to that and why when we say the word justice or social justice, you don't actually know what you're talking about. And sometimes for Christians, too, you don't actually know what you're talking about. So, oh, is, it, is that provocative enough? Because I really want you to keep me awake while I'm speaking. So, and I need you to be awake. So the, uh, the title of my talk is The Heart of Restorative Justice in the Heart of the Christian God. To introduce this, I want to give you a sense of the vision that my wife Ming and I had for my, our family. And if you can have the next slide. This is a picture of my daughter Zoe at the top left, and my son John, who's two years older than her, uh, This when, when Zoe was just born. And to the right, that's an acorn. <laughs> and the reason why that's up there is because For two years, Ming and I had John to ourselves, and of course, he had us to himself, 
And when Zoe was coming along, we were a little worried. Is he going to, you know, get jealous of his little sister? Is he going to have the sibling rivalry stuff? Is he going to regress and start peeing in his underwear again? And, you know, jealousy, that kind of thing. I don't know what you guys did if you had younger siblings and remember when they came along. Uh, but the, you know, the, the issue for us, we were praying and we were kind of coaching John of like, this is how we're going to treat Zoe when she gets here, when she kind of comes out of mama's belly. And uh, he was actually really excited, and we prayed for him, and, and uh, prayed with him, and, and he prayed for Zoe, and <clears throat> when she arrived over at Brigham and Women's Hospital, I brought him the next day in the morning, and along the way, as we rode the tea and as we were walking down the street, he picked up an acorn, and he held it up to me and said, for Zoe? And I was so touched because, well, obviously, she was thinking of his sister. And, and that was the first two-syllable word that he said fluidly, like Zoe. And after that, can I have the next slide? After that, he would love playing with her. I mean, he would wake up and ask, Zoe, Zoe? And uh, they would play, and it was really fun. That acorn that you just saw was... Um, has become our favorite Christmas ornament. We put a pin and a ribbon on it, and we hang it up on our Christmas tree every year. It's our favorite thing, because it reminds us of how John entered into our vision for our family, for the vi- into the vision that we had for relationship, not only individually, but them one to another. And that last picture of the, key, uh, the two hands on the piano is them playing a duet. I think it's Aladdin, because I am Asian and I make my kids play piano. <laughs> the vision, you know, like that's... Can I have the next slide? I, I share that... Because, because God has a vision for us of, of our relationships, not just individually us with him, you with him, one-on-one, but also one with another. And so in friendship, where we are our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper, in marriage, family, economic relationships, political relationships, and relationships involving historic injustice. Let me give you some examples of that. Next slide, please. Uh, There was a Supreme Court case that came about in in 1989, and this is called J.A. Croson versus the City of Richmond, Virginia. Here's the situation. City of uh, Richmond, Virginia was 50-50 white and black. And at one point in time, people realized that the city contracts for construction were awarded 99% of the time to white-owned construction companies and contractors and things. So whenever a new building or new school would go up, like, it was disproportionately white. And so they passed some legislation saying that we want 30% of the city construction contracts to be awarded to black-owned businesses. And also there's this other criteria of uh, contractors who live in the city of Richmond. And my understanding is Boston you know, sometimes does that. The, I haven't kept up with it. But, it. but essentially, there was a 
white-owned business, Croson, who sued the city of Richmond and said, that's a quota system, it's unfair, it's not a pure merit system. Now, that went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And here's what they said. They said, in 1989, that, uh, well, look, we all recognize that there is, was and perhaps is still some discrimination happening by race. But uh, we don't know exactly what to do with that, and the, the quota system is actually, well, before I say what they said, let me highlight the two principles at stake. Because there are two principles of justice going on. There is the pure merit principle, which is a principle of justice. I mean, wouldn't you want to be awarded according to your hard work? I think we all would. I was in Uganda last summer where there is so much corruption in government, people say we are, there's nepotism, favoritism, all these kinds of things. In other places, there's racism. Whenever there's legacy admissions, any time where there, people are not awarded according to how hard they've worked, well, there is a kind of injustice, isn't there? But yet, at the same time, there's a fair distribution principle. There's the distribution of jobs in this case, right? And how do we offset racism if it's, if it's not actually, there's something else going on. There's not a pure merit system going. So, so is that, what should we do there? So is there anything in secular thought that tells you actually which principle of justice to use here? I would argue no, and I'm going to come back to that. Well, essentially the Supreme Court said, well, yeah, we're going to rule against the city in this case. Those, we think those fair distribution quotas are not appropriate. And so we're going to rule in favor of this white-owned construction business. That's really interesting. So there, there is a meritocratic principle and a distributive justice principle. Okay, I want, just want to highlight that. That's very similar to the next uh, slide, please. Uh, University of California versus Baki. Uh, this concerned uh, basically admissions into medical school and when and how to use race as a criteria. It's affirmative action. And essentially, again, the Supreme Court overruled uh, the UC system's affirmative action kind of race sensitivity at that point. Now, again, that highlights this tension between meritocratic justice and distributive justice. Next slide, please. There are actually four types of justice that I know of, and maybe you've studied this. If, you, if you're, say, pre-law, or you're interested in jurisprudence, or, or look, something happened to you and your family, and you, you're trying to process why that happened. There are four different types of justice. Meritocratic, where you get what you merit, whether positively as a reward, or if you commit a crime, you're punished somehow. You merit. The second is distributive. It's where we ask, what is the baseline that every person should have? Should they have clean air, food, and water? Should they have free public education paid for by taxpayers everywhere? Should we have universal health care? What is that baseline? And, you know, there's not agreement about that, but we, we think, or many people feel, that there is some kind of baseline equity, at least a level playing field, that we owe one another 
The third type of justice is libertarian justice, and that is where the idea is liberty is justice, freedom is justice. This is a very enlightened European Enlightenment idea. It comes from Rousseau, Locke, perhaps Kant, and essentially the idea is we're born free into a state of nature, and the less interference you experience in life from the government, from law, perhaps from your parents, the the more just it is, because the, the idea of justice is individual first. And then, finally, there's restorative justice, where you don't start with the individual, you start with a vision for relationship. So, for instance, if I am a teenager and you are a store owner and I steal something from you, and I come back 30 minutes later and say, I'm really sorry, I had a change of heart, I stole this, but I want to give it back, am I done? Well, many people would say, no, not quite. Because there is, there should be trust between you and me. And I have done something to break that trust, so you would be within your rights to ask me to do something to restore that trust. For example, hey, why don't you work with me a few hours at the store? Or I'd like you to meet my family because I want you to know who would have been affected by your action, had you gone through with it. Something to restore trust, because you start with a vision for relationship first, and then you call people into that. Now, here's the question. Next slide, please. Which principle of justice is most important? If I were to poll you, I wish we had time for this because this is, this is actually significant. This is a, a, this is a big interactive display. It's a poster that I set up on campus, and this is what I use to talk to everyone of all faith backgrounds, all ethnic backgrounds. And there's no agreement about which justice is the most important. Next slide, please. Uh, if you are Republican, you tend to say that libertarian justice is first, and then meritocratic justice is second. If you are, next slide, if you are Democrat, you tend to say that libertarian justice on social issues is first, and distributive justice is number two, and then meritocratic is number three. You know, so for instance, this is why many Republicans are, are against gun control, right? Because the, the primary issue is Hey, how can you in infringe on our liberty? And they're ag against Obamacare. How can you make me buy health insurance? Because the number one thing should be political and economic liberty. Like, what, how can you tell me how to do that? Uh, versus Democrats will say, well, look, we want freedom and liberty when it comes to our social issues like sex and reproductive rights. But we, we also want to have a baseline equity when it comes to things like universal health care, and the system just works better if everyone's paying in. It's kind of like car insurance. You know, so, it, but is there something that actually tells you in secular thought how to organize these four types of justice? I would say, I don't think so. So, thank you. Why should your definition of justice prevail? Now, the majority of people put philosophical foundation, the one in the center, as that foundation. And then I ask him, what is that foundation? What tells you which principle of justice to prioritize 
when, and how to organize those four types of justice. And they say, I don't know. I've asked this of Harvard and BC students. I've asked this of law students at both places. And they say, actually, you are touching on the problem of jurisprudence. We have this word justice, and yet we don't know what it means. Next slide, please. And so is, the question is, is your order philosophically grounded, or is it fundamentally arbitrary? Next slide, please. There are two books that I'd recommend to you. One is by Michael Sandel. He's a political philosopher at Harvard, and Alistair McIntyre. He is a Catholic political philosopher at Notre Dame. And both of them acknowledge there is nothing in secular thought that actually tells you on these four principles, how to organize them. Next slide. And so, if you've never thought about this before, or if you think there is a secular way to do it, actually, your answer should be, there is no justice, only power. And my question for you is, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about acknowledging that actually there's nothing that is really telling you what justice is, and so you just want power so that you could put your definition of justice at the top, but it's not intellectual, it's just political. You're a power monger. How do you like that? It makes us feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? It would make me feel uncomfortable if I had to acknowledge to myself that that's all I'm doing, that justice is little more than a nice word that I slap on top of my agenda, which is completely arbitrary. Next slide, please. I believe that there is a Christian order for social justice. This is where it gets fun. And it goes like this, that restorative is first, because God has a vision for relationships. We see it in Genesis already when we see God say to Cain, where's your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? And the implicit answer is, yes. Yes. What does that entail? Well, we learn about that. So God has a vision. This is why Jesus calls us to love our enemies and forgive those who sin against us because actually his vision for relationship comes before our emotions and he calls us into his vision. The second is distributive, distributive justice. Third is meritocratic. And fourth is libertarian. And I'll explain why this order is present in Scripture and how I'm interpreting Scripture. And I want to say that this order is grounded in who Jesus is, in the story that he's a part of, and therefore it is not arbitrary. We could then look there at Jesus and ask, who is he? Was he real? Was he really resurrected from the dead as a vindication of God's original creation order, which he said, it is good, human bodies are good, human relationships are good, it just needs fixing, and so I'm going to raise it new. That's what his resurrection means in this context. We can look at that and ask, did that really happen? Just as if you were serving on a jury and you had to decide, well, did the crime really happen or not? There is a way to know. You look at evidence and so on. So it is not arbitrary. Next slide, please. Here's some of the reasons why I would say it's restorative justice above all others. 
You look at how Jesus taught on these topics, for example, and I already mentioned forgiveness and reconciliation. And probably you feel this at about now because most schools have the housing lottery coming up. I don't know how you guys do your, you know, your dorm systems or how you look, but this is the question where, especially for freshmen, it's who's my friend? Or do I like my roommates, right? How, how am I doing with these conflicts and things like that? Well, Jesus has a vision for how we would handle that. Not that we would have to be best friends, but that we would honor and respect one another. And that's really significant to him, because that's God's vision. But also, how we express sexuality in marriage, there is a picture of that. How we share wealth and how we share power and honor. And a lot of that comes in Matthew 19 and 20. Next slide, please. Here is how I'm seeing that. Jesus says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and blah, 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 and because, but because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. See, right there, what he's doing is He's saying, look, God had a vision for a relationship. All relationships. In this case, he's talking about marriage. The Pharisees, these other leaders are, are asking him about, well, what about divorce? And why is there in Deuteronomy 24 this permission for divorce? And Jesus explains that. He says, look, that's because in the fall, something happened to human hearts, became hardened, corrupted. Human nature became kind of sick, and you're selfish. But if you weren't that way, we wouldn't have divorce. We would have God's vision. Now, then, here's another question then. Okay, if that's true about, for marriage, what about economic relationships? How would we deal with our money with one another? And that is partly what the rich young ruler story is about right afterwards. And it happens that way in every gospel. Well, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Matthew, Jesus goes so far as to say, well, look, in the regeneration, in other words, in the regenesis, in the re-giving of the original creation order, you would have been extremely generous, sacrificial. It is all hospitality for every new person. There wouldn't be this holding on to wealth that you're doing. And so... Jesus says to this particular guy, here's all my teaching. Basically, leave your wealth and follow me. Give to the poor. Because that is actually what God intended from the beginning. Flexibility. Generosity. And that's what Jesus is calling us back to. And so we have specific responsibilities to give to others and not just rights that we claim over others Next slide, please. So that is restorative justice. The next, you may be wondering, why am I prioritizing distributive justice over meritocratic justice? I don't know if you've heard of this before, but essentially, here's why. American evangelicals tend to go to Proverbs and say, oh, look, Proverbs says, if you don't work, you don't eat, because Israel lived in an agricultural system. They were farming, and of course, if you don't work, you don't eat. And so there's meritocratic justice. And that is true. There is meritocratic justice and principles in Scripture. But let's look deeper. Because actually, if you only do that, 
you're taking things out of context. The overall vision for God giving land to the Israelites is found in Leviticus 25 and other places in Numbers. But essentially, in Leviticus 25, God says, when you walk into the land, divide it by tribe and then by family. And every 49 or 50 years, I press a reset button so that if if one person is poor, if you're poor and you have to sell your land to your neighbor, then actually your neighbor has to sell it back to you, even if he doesn't want to. Or some, one of your relatives actually has to buy it on your behalf, even if he doesn't want to. And if you're so poor that your family support, no one can afford your land, he has to give it back to you for free. What do you think of that? Is that fair? I mean, he, he bought the land fair and square up to 49 years ago. So why should he have to sell it back or even give it back? Because God is saying, I don't want you to pass advantage or disadvantage down to your grandchildren. That's not fair. And so the principle of distributive justice actually comes first. And then you could look at other passages, Deuteronomy 13, 15, 24, Isaiah 58, at what God said if the Israelites did not do things like that. They didn't care about the poor. They didn't care about everyone getting their land back because the idea here is that if the fall never happened, it would have, it would have, life would have looked for us something like this. Everyone would have their own garden. Everyone, every family would have their own land. They would inherit it from their parents because part of what it means to be in the image of God is to receive the land, like Adam and Eve received it from God, and also to bestow it on your heirs, just like God bestowed it to Adam and Eve. That's what it's like to bear the image of God. And so it's to care about distributive justice. We in our society allow for ourselves to pass down advantage and disadvantage to our grandchildren. That's a big difference. A big difference. So there is an ordering here. Next slide, please. Now, in the New Testament, the dominant image economically shifts from the land to the table. The idea is that Jesus sits at a table. There are ten meal scenes in Luke, and he is hosting a meal. God has provided all the food, and he brings everyone he can to it. And when one person doesn't have a lot of food, they ask, Can you pass the bread? This is what it means in Luke 14 when he says, invite the poor, the lame, the sick, the blind, and provide for them at the table. Have table fellowship with them. Eat meals with them, which is not this token thing. If you eat with someone back then, the cultural context is they're your friend, they're your peer, they're your equal, you are sharing life with them. And so the dominant image of Christian life is the table. God sets the table, we all come to it, we share. And in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul gives a, an example of how that works out. He's talking to the Corinthian Christians about these Judean Christians that they've never met who are suffering from a famine. And he says to the Corinthians, hey, why don't you give to them? You, you said you would. Can you renew that pledge? And he's doing that all over the place with Romans, with Philippians. And, and essentially, his idea of giving to the church is... Find the place in the Christian community globally that's the most hard hit 
by bad times and give there. Never does Paul say, or anywhere in the New Testament, suggest that we should say, just give 10% of our money or of our income to our local church. If we all did that, we would be reproducing income inequality across the globe in the church. That's not anywhere in Scripture. The idea here is, no, the church globally sits at a table together. And the hungry say, can you pass the bread? And those who happen to have more, share. Now, after that, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, in a different kind of situation, yeah, if you don't work, you don't eat, because people apparently were sitting around just waiting for the second coming to happen. Look, if that's what you're doing, then we're not going to support that habit. And other Christians don't have the responsibility to enable that behavior. But essentially, in the New Testament as well, distributive justice comes before meritocratic justice. Next slide, please. Uh, A brief word then on libertarian justice. And by the way, this is an introductory talk for a series of things that I, a series of messages that I've given that could go anywhere from like five or ten sessions. So sorry, you're getting kind of a high level view, but I want you to see what the impact is. For those of you who have libertarian sympathies, I wish I could go in more depth. I wrote a, a paper on this if you'd like to look at it on my website. But the, the idea is that there are some very valid concerns that are brought up by libertarian uh, the position. What is the freedom of the person, freedom of religious conscience, and things like that? Very good questions. But fundamentally, the premise is wrong. We, because you cannot start with the individual and say every relationship is just a social construct. It's up to you to define however you want to do it, however you want to define relationships. It's, you can remold them whatever, whatever way you want to. You can't do that and also start with a vision for relationship, that, especially one that God has, for how we treat one another. So there are very important concerns. And here's the issue here with libertarian justice. I'll have, I'll, I say this in, a, in the cheekiest way I can, just to kind of get you thinking, is that that's a very European idea, and I'm Asian. What I mean by that is I thought we were born into families, you know, with benefits and obligations. I, when were we ever born free? At no time in human history has that ever been true. And so when Rousseau and others took philosophy in that direction, what they actually did was cut off philosophy from all the other academic disciplines. Anthropology, sociology, history. When has it ever been true that we're born free? That's a political construct. And that's what I mean. I'm Asian, that's a, but, and that's a very European idea. And that, that can be helpful to think about. But the premise is arbitrary, and it's historically inaccurate. So let me come back to this issue, race relations and the distribution of work and wealth. In this case, if we revisit Croson versus the city of Richmond, Virginia, if we were to follow the idea of God's ordering of restorative, then distributive, then meritocratic, then libertarian, 
we could say that there is a fair distribution principle that can be prioritized equally or before the pure merit principle. There is a basis for doing that. Now, how you do that, it, there are many ways. In affirmative action, for instance, I think perhaps we should look at more of an income, parents' income type of thing, rather than just race. But, you know, we can have a, a good conversation about that. The, the principles can be applied in different ways. It, it doesn't automatically mean you have a solution to every situation. There is still humility about how we go about that and what data we look at. But I think that it really helps to have your principles in order. Next slide, please. Well, so this is what I just touched on, that there is an order. Next slide. And so for me, and my invitation is for you, I'd like you to think about justice as having a theological foundation. It does not have a philosophical foundation, and it's really kind of depressing and, I don't know, scary to think of justice being just a, a word that we slap on our agenda in order to make it sound better. I do think that there is an order. There is a vision. God had a vision for relationships for you and me. And with the birth of every single person, we all are invited into, to renew his vision, to live out of his vision, and ultimately Jesus actually heals human nature and the damage that we have caused ourselves so that we can be empowered to live in his vision again. That's why he says, I'm removing hardness of heart and actually challenging you on things like divorce and marriage and economic relationships, and so on. Because I'm actually bringing you back to who you were always meant to be. And I'm inviting you to take your place in the relationships God always wanted. That we would be giving little acorns to him and saying, is this for my neighbor? Is this for my friend? Can this be for the person that I have yet to meet? That is his heart. And so the heart of restorative justice lives in the heart of this God. And my invitation to you is, if you are now troubled that actually, see, in this country, the reason why Republicans and Democrats can't talk to each other anymore, some people say it's a loss of civility no, it's not a loss of civility. It's actually a loss of rationality. It's a loss of foundation. People can't talk to each other anymore. Or if you're troubled by your own limits of, well, I don't know how to define justice, and this was very troubling. Well, I invite you to consider this. And consider Jesus. He is the source of justice. May we not be obstructors of justice let me pray for us and then send us out. Lord, it is a timely, timely moment to address these things, and I'm very grateful for the invitation to be here with friends, new acquaintances. And I thank you for every person and for the patience 
and the interest on their faces. I pray that you would continue to help them to process these things, to see that justice lives in your heart, a certain kind of justice, a certain way of doing justice. I pray that you would help us to read the newspaper and think through our lives and think through our relationships and think through our conflict with our roommate with your eyes. Remind us of your vision for human relationships. And we ask you to give us courage and strength by your Spirit. And would your Spirit hover over us in this place and in this time and as we go and bring forth life as you always intended. And so, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we receive your blessing here as we are sent out into the world to bear witness to your restorative justice. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.